Welcome, listeners, to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose Levy, and I'm here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. Uh, we're now in the 11th year of our program um, that's been running here on PRN um, FM, uh, and what a year 2020 is turning out to be. I'm a longstanding journalist and uh, activist. Uh, for the environment, health and food, policy, uh, political engagement, civic engagement, and uh, transitioning our society to one that is pro-health and pro-environmental and pro-caring as our core values. Um, Each week on the show, we talk with different experts, doctors, scientists, authors, advocates, filmmakers, television producers, economists, journalists, poets, and a whole host of people who each focus on or or delve in depth into a specific aspect of our interconnected ecobiological world. Um, Today, I am delighted to have uh, a guest returning to the show who's been on many, many times, actually. Um, She's Dr. Margaret Flowers, MD, um, and uh, I became aware of her work um, during the fight for what became Affordable Health Care, a.k.a. Obamacare. I mean, that's what it wound up being. Um, But before it became defined that way, many of us had a wide range of different hopes about what a really uh, health-oriented rather than profit-oriented caring healthcare system could look like. And at that time, Dr. Flowers was championing uh, in universal health care. We'll discuss that a little bit more on the show. She is an organizer and co-founder of Popular Resistance, um, which is a terrific um, uh, basically online newsletter uh, with wonderful articles as well as um, uh, a radio program that she and her partner Kevin Zeese do together. Together. Um, and she, yeah, so we're really delighted to be speaking with Margaret today, and we'll be talking about her current article, which um, I think kind of coalesces a lot of wisdom and focus uh, for the current uh, crisis of the, uh, you know, of the virus, of the pandemic. So welcome back to Connect the Dots, Margaret Flowers. Lovely to have you here. Thank you for having me, Allison. I appreciate the invitation. So, you know, your article really, you know, there's been a lot of debate and confusion, politicization, mystifying, um, you know, theorizing, um, and kind of almost like a spectrum of different concerns um, that cloud uh, our way to understanding what's going on with the um, coronavirus and seeing our best best um, sort of political civic pathway toward containing it and uh, helping people, you know, regain health or avoid the virus, avoid contracting it or avoid perishing from it um, in, you know, which is currently at risk. And so I I felt that your recent article, which appeared on popularresistance.org, really was very clarifying and helping people to refocus from a lot of the confusion. Um, the article, um, listeners, for those of you who might want to go to the website and read it, um, which is certainly worthwhile doing, is the United States is where COVID-19 deaths are being underreported. Um, and, you know, I think, 
again, you're peeling away uh, a layer of politicization, you know, who is to blame, you know, rather than basically trying to take the most constructive actions that are needed, you know, there's a lot of finger-pointing going on uh, and wanting to blame-dump on other people rather than taking, uh, taking responsibility for doing the, the most necessary and helpful actions. Um, so, you know, do you want to kind of uh, just talk a little bit about what the current political accusations have been as well as what the problem really is as you see it? Sure, thank you. Yes, this has been a situation that has been highly politicized at a time when what we really need is clarity. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I'm still recovering from recent infection. Um, what we need right now is political clarity and leadership and coordination on this effort. But we've, you know, gone through a whole series of mistakes from the fact that the United States was alerted early on that this was a uh, epidemic that could potentially be a pandemic, and the U.S. didn't take it seriously, where the leadership was calling it a hoax and using it to, you know, bash the other party, and then um, not taking appropriate measures to make sure that we had what we needed. The U.S. was continuing to export medical supplies that we need here to other countries at a time when other countries were limiting their exports to prepare for the infection, and uh, just a, a whole... Uh, lack of willingness to recognize the severity of, of what we were facing. And so a lot of people have been misinformed, even, you know, from the leadership about how serious this is and what they need to be doing. And and then there's a whole, um, the aspect of this being used to weaponize this virus against other countries, which we could go into in depth. There's been a lot of China bashing over this, uh, which runs counter to the facts that China responded appropriately, reported to the World Health Organization, took appropriate steps once they recognized that there was human-to-human -human transition, I mean transmission, and, um, and that this was a serious situation. Uh, China took effective measures to control it and has had excellent data that Western researchers and the World Health, or Health Organization have been looking at. So we're seeing in the media now this whole narrative, you know, trying to distract from the fact that the United States has utterly failed to contain and this epidemic and a pandemic and care for its people and instead is trying to shift attention to look at China and say, oh, no, China's the one that's, that's not reporting, you know, their deaths and their cases, when in fact it's actually happening here. Now, you know, that last um, statement that it's that the underreporting of deaths is happening here um, is kind of like, you know, the sleeper shocker. Uh, I mean, there is a certain portion of the population that is willing to participate in the finger-pointing and name-calling and, you know, its loyalty to government leaders um, leads people to be misled and then, you know, kind of diverting uh, their attention and energy from the really salient thing, which is that there, in fact, is not less death. This is not a fiction or a fantasy or a hoax, but there's actually more death that's happening that we're not aware of that's being underreported. Can you go into that a little bit more for our listeners? Sure. And, you know, the 
one of the big mistakes that was made in the United States was not having tests for the COVID-19 available and a, a plan, you know, reasonable guidelines for the use of them early on. Instead of accepting the test from the World Health Organization, which other countries were using, the United States chose to create its own test. Uh, the CDC had some problems rolling that out and tests were sent out that didn't have the proper materials so they couldn't be used. And so they had these very strict guidelines of who could be tested and you had to really be in the hospital or have come from uh, an area that had a high number of cases like, you know, Wuhan in China in order to qualify for getting tested. And so there's a study that just came out of the University of Texas at Austin that says that we're probably only finding or reporting one in 10 cases of this virus in the United States. So we are now you know, well over 400,000 cases, which if we use their data means that we actually have 4 million cases in the United States. And I know anecdotally that I'm hearing uh, from lots of people who have symptoms that are consistent with the COVID-19 who were not able to get tested. So, you know, it, it's, it also, you know, is consistent with what I'm seeing. And then the same thing with the deaths and we know that there are people who are dying, but they didn't have a chance to get tested. And in New York in particular, where there's a very high number of cases, they're finding that their number of deaths in home have escalated by 180 to 195 deaths a day. And they suspect mm. that many of these are due to COVID-19, but they don't have the test, so they're not doing testing post-mortem. You know, post and besides that, they're so overwhelmed, they can't really even focus on that. So they're seeing things like an increase in cardiac arrest. And we know that the way that the virus functions, it causes fibrosis in the lungs, scar tissue in the lungs, which makes it harder for the heart to, you know, pump blood through there. And so this, for someone who has underlying heart disease, could lead to or instigate a heart attack. And so, um, and then the other thing is that the uh, McClatchy just did an excellent report, and they found that in February and early March, there was a spike in pneumonia deaths that were not due to the flu, and they suspect that those deaths were due to COVID-19. So, um, so it's likely that, you know, the number of deaths that we're seeing is much higher than what's being reported. Mm. That's very serious, because on the one hand, you have people saying, oh, these numbers are, are, you know, are not, I mean, some people are saying on the fringe are saying these numbers are not, uh, revealing, you know, anything worse than the normal flu, although, of course, it is highly contagious um, and affecting many more people uh, and, and, you know, and causing these deaths. Some people are just kind of poo-pooing it, but we really can't take that seriously for a number of reasons, but especially because we we don't we, we we're missing numbers and they will never be caught up i mean it's like if it's not being collected now uh this is another you know big fail not to have the right data um because then we really don't know how we're doing also you know what was the reason for the idiosyncratic rejection of a pre-existing test to then produce a test um, you know, in, in, in short order that, um, you know, creates an austerity situation where it's, it, we're not only underreporting deaths, but people, 
don't know if they have it or not. They have no way of validating that. They're, they don't know if they're infectious to other people. They have to kind of presume they are. Everybody, you know, therefore has to presume they are, and in fact many may be. Um, but, you know, the whole, it would certainly be um, more validating to, uh, to know that you're staying at home for good reason or to kind of rein in the people who don't think it's necessary um, to, you know, to shelter at home and, and to avoid potentially infecting other people when there's no test. I mean, we're just in the wild world right. where, every, why, you know, where everyone has to guess about this. Absolutely. You know, they, they said that it's not unusual for the United States to want to create its own test. Um, and mm-hmm. I suspect that that's true because in the United States where healthcare is a for-profit, uh, you know, in, entity, mm-hmm. Corporations are always looking for ways that they can profit off of this. So, you know, it's in the U.S. corporate interest to not take a test that's already been produced and just purchase it and use it. You know, there are probably many and there are many places where they're trying to develop their own tests, which they can then sell. So that was a huge mistake because if we look at countries around the world that are actually taking effective measures to hold this virus in place, it's founded on a basic public health approach of testing, identifying people who are positive, isolating them, monitoring them, identifying their contacts and, you know, contacting them and perhaps testing them. You know, what you try to do is really as much as possible isolate people who are positive to stop the transmission or at least to slow it severely. And we really missed a huge window to do that. In the University of Texas study, they estimate that 72% of counties in the United States have the virus spreading there. And at this, these 72% of the counties represent 94% of the population. They say if just one person in your community is diagnosed as positive for COVID-19, there's a 51% chance that that virus is already spreading in your community. So um, this is part of the reason why we now have a widespread shelter in place because of this mistake, because of the failure to be able to identify people and quarantine them, notify others, take appropriate measures. The the other really telling part of this is just how weak our public health infrastructure is. In China, for instance, in just Wuhan, they had, I think it was 1,800 infection teams. They were teams of five people who were tasked with following up with anybody who was positive, monitoring them, identifying their contacts, and making sure that they were isolating appropriately and getting what they needed. We we really are severely lacking in that area, and this is one thing that we could be doing with the number of people who are being laid off right now. It would not be hard to train them in, you know, answering phone lines, calling people, tracking this data, and that would make a lot more sense in, in starting to contain the virus. That, that's really an excellent idea. Um, you know, it's almost as if both the um, public health infrastructure that should be in place in a large, complex society like ours or anywhere, you know, um, is has been, you know, kind of ap- sort of taken down. And there, you know, it, it, it isn't commensurate with the kinds of health risks of our complex society or of our time. But even the very phrase public health, you know, is, is kind of meaningless to people. 
you know, it's like it's it's kind of a void area where people don't even know that, um, you know, such a thing should be in place or exists. Um, you know, it's just incredible. I mean, we we not. It's kind of like uh, on the parallel side with taking down safe and health-oriented regulations that would protect people from, you know, unhealthy ingredients in foods, uh, in uh, products, in environmental uh, activities and energy activities. You know, we've not only poorly regulated that to favor business, but we've also deconstructed the whole concept of public health and the infrastructure of public health so that there's nobody standing up to comment or to alert or to track or to follow. And we're really, you know, all of this is coming home to roost um, right now. And, uh, and further, I mean, the institutions who are advising, like the CDC, you know, like they're supposed to be public institutions, but if they go along with refusing a valid and pre-existing test in order to develop, you know, a for-profit test, then they're not really, you know, that credible in terms of the service they provide um, as public health watchdogs. So, you know, all of that is happening. What would you see as being other constructive measures uh, that need to happen? Because, you know, we're right now in a period where, People are sheltering, depending on the state, for different time lengths. But the sense is that, you know, this could be a continuing thing, that at the end of whatever the defined sheltering period is, um, without testing, we have no way to know where we are um, in terms of either containment or in terms of it's time to go back out and do normal things again, so-called. I mean, you know, right. that's another, that's kind of a back-end problem on this. Right. I mean, things. there are a lot of things that we should be doing. And I think first and foremost, we need leadership at the national level. Right now, it's really counties and states taking the initiatives on their own, trying to figure out what would be best. But we are, you know, we are a country, and this is a countrywide problem, and without really leadership from the top telling states and counties what they should be doing. If one place is taking appropriate measures but their neighbor is not, then that's going to harm the place. You know, that doesn't really help. It doesn't make what the one county is doing to take effective measures really that effective. So we need some clear direction on, you know, looking at the data, how long should we be, you know, sheltering in place, making it nationwide, and then making sure that people who are sheltering in place are not harmed by that, that they're not, you know, financially harmed because they can't work and they're not able to pay their rent or pay their mortgage or get access to food. So all that has to be part of it. We're also seeing, to me, which, you know, I I know we have a for-profit healthcare system. I've seen the really terrible, you know, destruction that that causes, but I really didn't imagine that it would be as bad as it is right now where we're seeing states competing with each other for medical supplies, for protective equipment, for ventilators, and the corporations are price gouging. There was a report that New York is paying up to 15 times the amount of money for their medical supplies. And, you know, what we need at the national level is either price controls or bulk purchasing of the medications, the personal protective equipment, ventilators, all the things that we need, and then making sure that this 
the areas that need them are getting the amount that they need, but instead what we're seeing is this politicization where states that, you know, the governor has offended the president are not getting the supplies that they need. The governor of Massachusetts was being denied supplies and had to actually charter an airplane, I think it was the Patriots airplane, to go to China and purchase the supplies there for his population. So instead of seeing this coordination and solidarity between our states, we're seeing this kind of brutal battle for supplies and health professionals are not being protected. Workers, essential workers are not being adequately protected. And so, you know, if we lose our health professionals and our essential workers, where does that leave us? So we really need to see much better uh, coordination and, um, you know, making sure that places can get what they need. Also, education, public education about this. People still aren't clear about what does shelter in place mean. You know, if I, you know, visit, if I have my family over, is that, you know, is that a problem or not? We just need to see really clear guidelines on this. And then I guess wow. one more thing right. I, I could mention is just is just making mm-hmm. sure that there's no financial barrier to care. Not only should the testing be free, but treatment should be free, and no one should have to actually pay for it and, you know, get reimbursed. It should just be free because people are, are not getting care, not getting into the system because they're afraid of the financial consequences of that. Yes. What uh, What does it cost, for example, to be tested or to get treated? I mean, are you aware of what the typical costs might be, or is there, you know, are there different dif- differences, or, you know, where, where where does that stand right now if, if you happen to know what the numbers are on that? You know, I don't know the current numbers. I know early on um, it was fairly expensive to get tested, and I, I think I saw one case that was like $1,400, but you know, I know the average cost of hospitalization for someone is like $35,000, and if they're in the intensive care unit, you know, can be much, you know, double or more that, it's, mm-hmm. you know, like thousands of dollars a day to be in the intensive care unit. So this is something that, that people think about, and I wonder about those people who are dying at home, why didn't right. they get into the system? You know, and if we had, if they didn't have that fear of calling the doctor and in an economic downturn, when everybody's worried about their economic security, it makes that incentive to not seek care even greater. Right. That's right. And, you know, the other irony of the whole situation, or tragedy, really, it's not an irony, it's a tragedy, is that there's this lack of testing. The treatment, you know, is... Uh, highly invasive and not always successful. And there, you know, and I speak as one who has championed and followed and promoted, uh, you know, holistic preventive approaches um, for Mm -hmm. the last 30 years, you know. So there's also um, both lack of knowledge about what preventive approaches might build the immune system so that one might not so easily um, you know, uh, get the infection as well as to minimize the uh, intensity of the infection uh, if, you know, which in itself constitutes a, a form of treatment because you're then surviving. And, and, and it's a given that many people would not be able to economically afford to access these treatments and that, you know, the people who supply these kinds of things may not be 
uh, prepared, you know, for millions of people yeah. to suddenly be, you know, wanting their treatment. So there's already, um, you know, a lack of equity built into that. And yet even so, um, to whatever extent we're able to let, you know, uh, kind of, lessen the intensity, prevent the, you know, the getting the infection and increase the uh, surviving of the infection, you know, without incurring these uh, hospital procedures that are, you know, overwhelming the healthcare system and for which we are not properly, you know, the healthcare system is not properly uh, supplied, that too would be beneficial. But then there's this big, you know, kind of gap around that. And so we, with all of these things, we basically have something that could be contained and treated that could potentially, the severity of which could be lessened. But all of that is very hard to come by because of the um, failure of leadership at the national level. Uh, You know, if if you ruled the world, um, you know, where do you, I mean, what do you, as we look at our political system today, You know, it's in dire straits. Obviously, this president, uh, you know, I mean, what can one say? It's just a horrible situation. But we're not really seeing uh, as much relief called for or provided by the opposition party as what's needed. I mean, how do you parse this out on a political level? It's a bipartisan problem. I mean, what it really... Uh, goes back to is our economic and political system that's dominated by money. And, you know, if you look at the way that our economy is structured, it's really where, you know, profit reigns and the health and well-being of the people and the planet are secondary to that. I mean, this, you know, our for-profit healthcare system has been in existence for a long time and has worsened for a long time. And the Affordable Care Act did some positive things by expanding Medicaid, and but overall, it, it also subsidized that for-profit portion of our healthcare system and did nothing to contain the pharmaceutical corporations that are, you know, misleading the public, pushing their medications, raising the prices. You know, when when there's a demand for it. You know, all the things that are opposite to what we actually need to be doing. So I think that it, it you know, it speaks to the, the broader need for, you know, a, a popular mobilization, which is why we started popular resistance to push back, is once we start changing the national dialogue on these things, it starts to move that kind of political needle in our direction. So we are seeing, you know, discussion of things that would have been never talked about before. There's widespread discussion of of a national health care system, of, you know, forgiving student debt, protecting workers, giving a universal basic income, all these things that wouldn't have been talked about before. And we're seeing, you know, other countries, it's interesting, Spain and Ireland, both as a result of this pandemic, nationalized their hospitals because they they recognized that having private hospitals wouldn't allow them to be able to, you know, coordinate and, um, you know, make sure that everybody who needed to get the care in their community could get it. So I think that in the United States we ought to be talking about these types of things of, you know, nationalizing our hospitals. We have 
an incredible situation where, you know, 1975, we had 1.5 million hospital beds for a population of 215 million. Today, we have 925,000 beds for a population of 330 million. So we've lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of beds as our population has, has risen. And a big part of this is that hospitals have to make a profit. They have to be financially secure in order to keep operating. And sometimes when these hospitals start to weaken, these these predatory corporations will buy them up. They'll extract whatever they can from them, and then they'll allow them to go bankrupt. And so we've lost many rural hospitals. We're losing about 30 or so rural hospitals a year, and about 450 of them that still exist right now are on very weak financial footing and, and could fail. We're also losing urban hospitals, particularly in neighborhoods that serve low-income communities that are gentrifying. The property that the hospital sits on becomes more uh, valuable than the hospital. So you look at the situation in Philadelphia where Hahnemann yeah. Hospital, which has for over 100 years served its community, it, it was closed down. The city tried to open it back up to deal with this emergency, and the person who owns the property said, oh, well, you give me a million dollars a month, you can open it up. <laughs> this type of thing should be criminal, but that's what's yes. happening in our country right now. Yes, that's, yeah, that's disgusting. Um, I, I was at Netroots Nation last summer where we were protesting the closing of Hanuman. I mean, just any wealthy person can come in, and you know, oper- I mean, he hasn't doesn't uh, his plan for it was eventually, I guess, to build luxury housing. That's happened in New York, right. the St. Vincent's Hospital, and so you know, uh, y- y- people lose health care uh, when these are you know just regarded as hollow you know real estate shells. Um, you know, I, I mean, the thing that I really wonder about is. And I, you know, it's really hard to gauge this, and it's kind of an unfair question. But when will people recognize what's going on and have enough, you know, and say this is enough, you know, this is endangering me? Whatever, um, you know, media entities are are kind of giving me a diversionary uh, coverage that really isn't getting to the core of this problem. You know, I need to turn them off whatever side I'm on, you know, because people are dying, communities are, are overwhelmed. We're losing, you know, our healthcare professionals due to lack of proper equipment right. and preparation here. I mean, uh, you know, so the healthcare system six months from now is, is you know, unless we do some major intervention, and, and, you know, by six months from now, I mean before, you know, the election, the, the whole system is going to be in much worse state. Um, because, you know, we're just throwing, the, you know, the, 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 the living beings of health care providers into the breach, um, you know, here without uh, proper protection. Right. Not so to they're mention not gonna, our, you know, you know, our bus people, drivers. They're not going to be there. What was that? Right. Right. Well, not to mention the other people that are essential to our, you know, community functioning, the bus drivers that are not protected. There was a bus driver that was pushing back in Detroit, Michigan for protective gear uh, because there were sick people riding on the bus and he ended up dying of COVID-19. You know, people who work in our grocery stores, you know, all of these people that we suddenly realize, these low-wage workers, realize that they're actually integral to the functioning of our society need to be protected as well. Indeed. I mean, the post office, the USPS, was actually advising 
postal workers not to wear a mask up until this very mm-hmm. week. They were, you know, they were going along with the sort of um, confused argument that if you adjust the mask, you're touching your face, which is specious because the whole point of wearing a mask is to protect the openings, you know, to your mucous right. membranes in your nose and mouth. So if you were adjusting the strap over by your ear, that really isn't a big deal. Meanwhile, you know, you weren't doing that, but then they weren't getting protection. They could be catching this. They could be spreading it to all who come in. That's another vector. Another vector is, for example, in New York, I'm a New Yorker, you know, it's the New York subway system. So on the one hand, we have... Cuomo being touted as a leader because he makes, you know, these public appearances and he can speak a coherent sentence. And on the same time, he has been responsible and in control of the Metropolitan Trade Authority, the MTA of New York State, which is, you know, the kind of ruling agency for the New York subway system. And that is a terrible vector, you know, uh, because uh, they took trash containers out of out of the subway system so that people could, like, throw away a tissue or something they blew their nose into or something else because they didn't want to. They were trying to save the cost of trash collection, um, you know, and cleaning in the subway. They have, you know, not dealt with the homelessness problem. He's cut Medicaid. Um, And, you know, all of that goes to mean that there are, you know, more uh, people who are uh, sick and in need of health care in the system, uh, exposing everybody. And so, you know, you basically wipe out the transit system of a major city, and I think that's actually a major unidentified contributing factor um, to, you know, why New York has become such a hot spot. And because he's mm-hmm. been in the one, who, you know, who's had a grip on that and won't let any changes be, be made that he doesn't control and, and all of that, and he's basically failed to act, so people are admiring him on the TV and never seeing really the way in which he has been I, I would suspect at cause um, for New York's current, you know, status vis-a-vis this virus. Right. Yeah, and as we learn more about this virus, initially we thought it was only transmitted through droplets, meaning if somebody sneezed or coughed and, you know, saliva or whatever came out and landed on a surface that contained the virus and then somebody touched that and touch their mouth or nose or eyes that they could get it that way. But now we understand that it's also airborne. So somebody just being around somebody who's infected, who's breathing in in close proximity, you can inhale the the virus particles. And we also know that um, in places where they've done extensive testing, like Iceland and and cities in Italy, they found that 50 to 75% of people who tested positive for the virus weren't showing any symptoms at all. So it's, you know, it doesn't even mean that the person next to if they're not coughing doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't carrying it and infectious. And they also found that, like many viruses, people are very infectious in a day or two before they show symptoms. So this is why, you know, we we need widespread measures of, you know, many places are, are doing sanitation regular regularly, multiple times a day of their transit systems and, you know, any shops that are open and things like that and exterior, you know, areas um, to make sure that the virus is is killed because it can also stay alive depending on the 
the surface that it lands on, you know, for up to several days. So everybody should be wearing a mask at this point. Um, initially, they were just telling people to wear a mask if you were, you know, coughing or had cold symptoms. But everybody should be wearing one at this point. Yes, they finally landed on that. Um, you know, I was thinking about it a month ago <laughs> because it's mm-hmm. like, what else are you going to do? In Asian countries, they do it, you know, and yet, um, and also, you know, they're, they're, it's a problem for certain populations because, you know, some people might um, perceive people of color wearing a mask as, you know, a threat to themselves um, because of racism and stuff like that. So, um, but it certainly, I think, is, you know, understood to be a menace now, and we have people, um, you know, uh, sewing masks and doing all of this kind of thing. But how protective those masks really are, I don't even know, actually. I think that maybe, you know, there are variations in in protection. What, what do you right. see, given where we are, um, you know, the... Uh, how should I say this? We're not really having a lot of help in, you know, doing the right interventions. They're being done belatedly. We don't have an economic safety net in place to assure that all members of society could be treated because it's not just an individual health problem, but it's a public right. health problem for anyone of any, you know, economic status or any age or whatever to be infected, right? Because we, you know, because we can't just assume that people that we are disregarding or think, you know, should have pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps or, you know, or or other ignorant ideas, we can't assume that those people, um, you know, are kind of out of sight, out of mind, and that they are not um, present, if, if not for you know, basic human concern, which is the way we should be thinking, that's the basis of solidarity, but in a competitive, individualistic society, we're not thinking that way. Many people are not thinking that way. So, but, but, but the people of whom, that one isn't thinking about or concerned for can't be discounted because um, for um, survival reasons for everybody, right? So, you know, if we just think there's no problem or that we won't get it or that it's their problem if they're individually sick. Um, you know, what are the understandings that should help people break through this cultural conditioning, you know, and yeah. really understand that this anyone's um, contracting this and being ill is a problem for everyone else? Right. I mean, we used to tell a story in the movement for national improved medicare for all about how in the united states we had fire insurance um if people didn't purchase fire insurance and their house caught on fire their the fire department wouldn't come and put the fire out and they realized that this didn't make sense because especially in you know cities where houses are closed together if one person doesn't have fire insurance and their house catches on fire it affects the whole neighborhood you know everybody's at risk and it's the same thing with in infections you know if if not everybody is able to get the care to get tested to be appropriately monitored and isolated if they're infected then then it affects all of us we're not able to 
you know, we're not able to stop and slow or slow the spread of the virus. As long as it's present in some sector of our population, all of us are at risk. And, you know, people have been taking steps. I know in our city of, of Baltimore, we've pushed very hard to get the homeless out of shelters. They're overcrowded in the shelters right now. We have empty hotels sitting in our city. We should be giving hotel rooms to those who are willing to take them so that they can shelter in place, and we should be testing them and monitoring them to see if they're positive, to provide them the care if they need it, to get them through this, because it's it's we're not really going to get this under control until we actually take these types of measures to get it under control. And another very sad um, aspect of what's going on right now is that there's, you know, looking at the deaths data and finding that a higher proportion of black and brown people are dying of COVID-19 than whites. And this speaks to the whole kind of long history in our country of health disparities and, you know, of black and brown people versus white people. And also the fact that I know you are also concerned about environmental health as am I, that we tend to place in, you know, polluting industries in low-income communities, in communities of black and brown people. And so that weakens their immune system, causes, you know, respiratory disease, and it makes them more vulnerable to COVID-19. So I feel like this pandemic, as well as the economic collapse that it has triggered, which was something that people, economists, have been, been predicting for quite a while. It, it wasn't you know, the, the foundation of our economic system has been very faulty with record levels of corporate debt and personal debt. And, and you know, the, the banks have been struggling and the Fed has been propping them up for months now. But it, finally it was triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, all of this is, is showing the flaws in our system, which creates an opportunity. And you asked earlier, you know, what will it take to get change? And I think so much is being exposed right now, and that's one thing that, that Trump has done as well because he's just right out there and in your face with it. He's, you know, all these issues that we've had, racism, sexism, um, you know, neoliberal economic policies, those have been going on for a very long time in this country, but he's just very open about it. And so I think people are feeling in a very tangible way the impacts of these systems. And so that creates an opportunity for us. And it's, it, to me, I am glad to see so many organizations out there saying, you know, no, we need this. We need, you know, moratoriums on evictions and on rent. And we need workers to be protected. Workers all around the country in all kinds of sectors are striking over their working conditions. And all of these are positive steps that people are fighting back because that's really what it's going to take to change things. And and that's always what we've needed to do. And I think we are starting to see that tipping point coming in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and actually, uh, the Sanders campaign, uh, although, you know, it is now beleaguered in terms of its continuity, although there are still opportunities to vote for him in a whole host of upcoming primaries if your state hasn't voted yet. And and that's something to take seriously because it can also kind of hopefully have some influence on the party platform, if not, you know, make for an unexpected and profound change. Um, But, you know, people, I think, have, you know, just hearing in a presidential campaign 
that, you know, healthcare is a human right over and over. You know, just hearing that, even with all the naysayers present who are going, well, no, it isn't, and, you know, it's for all who want it, or people don't want to lose their employer health care, all of the, you know, kind of specious arguments that were tossed against it, which now, of course, look absurd to, you know, right. <laughs> as people are laid off and en masse and everything like that. Um, you know, we're getting a real education. Uh, there's, you know, so, there's no doubt about that. And so I think that has inspired people, um, you know, whatever the unknown political outcome of this for the presidential election will be. You know, I think that has inspired people um, to you know, to understand that other countries have these things and they're kind of basic. And instead of normalizing, um, you know, the ways that our country is really behind and, you know, off, um, you know, so I, I think that may be part of it. Do you see this? as being at a moment where uh, it would have influence on the election itself, or do you think that we're kind of, you know, that's been so intensely captured um, and subverted that, uh, you know, by the way the two parties dance together, that uh, it's kind of a non-starter. I just, you know, I know that you've never, that you've always been a proponent of the third party, um, and... You know, there and I have many friends who, you know, are kind of like, why were you even trying to work in the Democratic Party, uh, you know, because they're so corrupt. Um, so, you know, what are, where do you think that leaves us now politically, you know, um, right. with, yeah, with all of this? Well, our, you know, our theory, my theory of political change or social change is, is not tied to elections. Um, what mm-hmm. we see really is that, People who run for office reflect what the you know what the society is saying or demanding. So the fact that you know Sanders has been able to be out there um, openly talking about wealth inequality, corporate power, healthcare as a human right. Um, we've even seen climate change introduced into the debates this year for the first time. These are all a, a reflection of the movement, the political movement in the in the population that has pushed these issues to the forefront. So even though, you know, in this election, the two major parties are going to have, you know, these really awful corporate candidates, you know, Joe Biden has a terrible history, if you go back, and he's already said if Medicare for All came to his desk, he would veto it. Um, I think that the, you know, the power of of candidates is that they have a platform and they're able to take these issues that are rising and gaining popularity and then really speak about them in a, in a bigger kind of echo chamber that, that educates more people. And that's a hugely valuable uh, thing, but it's always popular power that creates social change. So I don't think that people should get too, invested in this upcoming election as if that's, you know, going to determine victory or defeat in, in what we get. It's it's one part of it, but really, if if what we need to be doing right now, education is really key. It's why alternative media programs like yours are so important so that people can hear these, these views, which I think are really common sense and supported by the majority of people, you know, who recognize that health security, economic security, protection of the environment, that these are things that affect all of us and that are, are that we need and that other countries have and we could be learning from them if we weren't sanctioning them or threatening them with military aggression. Um, 
So I think that that the key thing right now is to be putting out a bold vision of what we want. It's interesting. You know, I I am with the Green Party, and we do have a candidate, likely candidate. Um, We haven't had our primary yet, but he's won a lot of the state primaries, Howie Hawkins. And I was talking to him yesterday, and he said, you know, the Chinese character for crisis is also opportunity. And that is something that we've been saying for a long time is that every crisis offers an opportunity because when you see a, a crisis, then people recognize that something needs to change. And and so we can push that change. And so putting forward a bold vision, not not kind of what we think we can get, but let's put forward what we actually need in this country and then mobilize and push for that. And I think that, that this decade is a very interesting one because so many crises that we've been facing in foreign policy, in, you know, with the climate crisis, environmental pollution, all of these things are coming to a head and things are going to have to change. The U.S. is losing its its domination in the world. The dollar is is losing out in the world countries are finding ways to to work around the US dollar and so something has to be done um and if we aren't organized with the vision of where we want to go then unfortunately whoever is the most organized and has the most resources will be the one who wins out ideologically so it's an opportunity but it's also an important kind of crossroads where we have to put forward a vision of what we need or we may end up with something that's even worse than what we have right now mhm like, not to be um, you know dire but <laughs> but we could move no, in a more right way you know like can you sketch out like a little bit more of that scenario of of what it would look like to get the kind of change that we need or what would happen you know if well, we don't we organize about the to change do a lot let's talk about the stick a little bit like what are we looking at if we don't get this in terms of you know you're saying for example another world power may emerge in better shape to handle this and where our solutions have always been to try to either exploit um you know foreign countries for their resources or to you know fear them as the enemy uh that we're trying to maintain our hegemony against um and, right. and you know therefore you raise fear about them and all of the rest of it so what you're saying is that um perhaps any of the countries that are in the la- uh latter car- category as we kind of continue on this um eco suicidal path that we seem to be on um could um kind of step up and gain uh prominence um and become you know a leader in the world which would then leave our country kind of in a further state of uh economic um uh, you know, without the inflated options that we've been kind of creating to stay afloat, like in a, in, in a worse state right. of collapse is what you're saying. Is that right? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, we have to recognize that the United States has the wealth and prosperity that it does because of our long history of exploiting other countries, you know, for their labor and their resources. And the United States, you know, at a time, it's really interesting where this is a global pandemic. Many countries are coming to each other's aid. 
But right now, the United States is increasing economic punishment against Venezuela and Iran, two countries that are trying to fight off the pandemic, and instead we're punishing them more, and we're actually threatening Venezuela with military aggression. We're sending warships to their coast right now. Of course, people aren't hearing about this because everybody's only talking about COVID-19, but the world, the rest of the world is seeing that. And countries are starting to finally speak out about this. The United States is currently imposing economic measures. Often people call them sanctions, but sanctions are illegal punishment, and these are not legal. These violate the United Nations Charter. We're sanctioning or imposing economic measures against 39 countries that represent a third of the world's population, and this prevents those countries from being able to get necessary resources like medications and food and parts to repair their, you know, infrastructure. And so they're starting to become this kind of global... Um, awareness and pushback against the United States doing that. We've been organizing over the past year to try to educate around this. We have a sanctions kill campaign that we've been working on, and you now see the head of the United Nations and of the UN Office on Human Rights saying that these sanctions need to at least be paused. They should be saying that they should be ended because they're illegal. We're seeing countries like the UK, France, and Germany use an alternative system called Instex to be able to sell supplies to Iran. Uh, we're seeing China and Russia completely ignoring those sanctions, even though Russia itself is being sanctioned and providing assistance to sanctioned countries. And so that, that kind of that kind of hammer that the United States has is not being effective anymore. Countries are finally starting to band together and stand up against it. The group of 77 plus China, which is the global South countries, have come out against it. The non-aligned movement, which is over 120 countries, have come out against the sanctions. And so what we're seeing is that the world sees that the U.S. is, is not a cooperative member. We're a punitive member. Uh, they see our uh -huh. incompetence in handling the pandemic, so they don't look to us as any sort of a leader in this situation. Meanwhile, uh -huh. you have countries like China that has a very rapidly growing economy, and when you look at indicators of the economy like purchasing uh, power parity, China is actually ahead of the United States, and now China is actually providing uh, supplies even to the United States as well as I think around 80 other countries of the world. And so we're, we're becoming a multipolar world where there's not one country that dominates, where other countries are learning to cooperate with each other, and that's kind of the 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 gist of where things are going, but the U.S. is really resisting that, even though it's aware of it. The Pentagon put out a report called the Post-Primacy Report years ago, recognizing the U.S. was losing power, but their response was, we need to spend more on the military, increase our surveillance over other countries, and increase our aggression. Those are the tools that the Pentagon knows how to use, and we need to say no. You know, we're we're seeing now almost two-thirds of our the federal discretionary budget going to the Pentagon. This is ridiculous. We need to be using this money at home. We have so many needs here. And just one final quick point on that is um, there was a report put out recently by the San Francisco Fed um, kind of looking at the economic situation. And, and when there is a pandemic, it's 
the the economic recovery from that is much is very slow. They, it's decades to recover from a, a global pandemic, unlike a war situation where there's destruction of of property and a need to rebuild that. And so, if we one another thing that we need to be pushing for at this time is saying our economy requires that we invest in the things that we need at home, building more hospitals, upgrading our infrastructure, moving to a clean energy economy. All of these things will create jobs and stimulate our economy and actually improve our health. We can, you know, we need to change our our agricultural practices. There's so many things that we need to do. And this crisis is an opportunity for us to push for that because even the financiers know that. And, And so, you know, we're just reflecting that reality. And I think that we have a chance of winning that. Wow. Um, in other words, in other words, are you implying that the corporations that are beholden and corrupt government is defending and giving resources to that they themselves uh, are realizing that that we have to reconfigure and that the government is actually kind of lagging and limping behind? But the problem is that if it's left to the corporations to do it, we still have their parasitical, uh, you know, role in terms of taking all the resources unto themselves and profits in order to right. do it. So how does that work? Right. Well, that's really important. And, and we posted an article on popular resistance yesterday that was actually from Reuters, and um, it, it talked about how there's been a kind of a global seismic shift in the thinking uh, now that these central banks have been having to bail out uh, these governments, and also kind of the recognition that, oh, hey, we've always been told that we couldn't have these things that we needed, like getting rid of student debt or, a, a, you know, public universal health care system because they're, quote, unquote, too expensive. But now we know that the central banks can just print trillions of dollars and, you know, put it out there. And so, and so that's created kind of a whole shift in the way that the world is thinking. In my view, the fact that these large institutions are recognizing that this is time for transformative changes just validates, mm-hmm. you know, what we're seeing and needing, thinking, and, and not saying that we want them to do it because we know that if people don't have a voice in this situation, that communities will be exploited and they'll be polluted and they'll be, you know, they won't get the things that we need. So I think it's it's just a recognition that this is a time where things have shifted in a great way, that we have a need for transforming our systems because it's the systems that create the problems that we have. And if we want to address the problems, we have to change those systems. And then for us as people to say, we, you know, we want a voice in this. You know, like if you look at the Extinction Rebellion, their second de- or third demand is is that there should be citizen assemblies that are making decisions about how the climate crisis is dealt with, what kinds of policies are put in place. If you look at countries like Venezuela, they've created these extensive systems of community assemblies that meet and determine what they need in their community, and they also group together as larger uh, groups of assemblies for larger projects, and then they go to the government and say, this is what we need, and they get the funding to do that. There are structures that have much more of a participatory nature, and that's how we make sure that our needs are prioritized. That sounds fantastic. Um, We're at the end of our show here, and this is like a really hopeful vision for maybe what will 
be the forms of rebuilding occurring in this incredible social breakdown that we're experiencing. Thank you so much for being with us today on Connect the Dots, Margaret Flowers. Um, people go to her website, popularresistance.org, for her articles, uh, her and Kevin Zeese's articles, posting of other articles, their radio program, um, and their insights and, and uh activist opportunities and all-around education uh, for all of us on um, stepping up to a collaborative, um, solidarity, caring-oriented um, collective and community in this uh, incredible time of change. Um, so check out popularresistance.org, both for the article we've talked about today as well as some of the other things that Margaret has referenced in her conversation today. Thanks again, Margaret. It's been great having you here. Thank you. And thank, and thank you listeners for being with us for another edition of Connect the Dots. We'll be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm Allison Rose Levy. Keep sheltering at home uh, and in solidarity with all our relations. <laughs>